Please turn to Psalm 24. We continue with another Psalm of David this morning, Psalm 24, and here it is. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. What is the origin of this thing that we call the world? Why is it here? Why am I here? Or what is my purpose in life? These are some of the big philosophical questions that have moved the hearts of countless people since the beginning of time. Now, from here, you can proceed in one of two directions, as there are ultimately only two kinds of people living in this world. You can assume that all is for you to figure out on your own in a closed world. And I must say, apart from Jesus Christ, you are living in a closed world. You may picture this as living on a horizontal line. It never is elevated. It never goes in any other direction, but it is horizontal and it does not transcend. You may be living on a horizontal line today. You may be living as though you are no more than a biological entity. You may be a curiosity too because human beings can still do great things, but you do not have a real link to something bigger, something, someone bigger than yourself, and you are bound to perish. All people live on this horizontal line apart from Jesus Christ. And the other direction in which and by the way, this is true for people who are religious too. There are many religious people, God, people in this world, God bless their hearts. But if they do not know the true and living God, whatever God they worship is still only a figment that arises from their own imagination 
and is therefore found on a horizontal line. And then there is, of course, another option, another direction in which to proceed, and it is vertical. It is upward. And it is the one that David has chosen in Psalm 24 in speaking of ascending, going up, upwards to the holy hill of the Lord. He begins with the God who is there. He begins with the God who is here, who is here now, today. The God who is filling this space and every space, even though you can't see him. He begins with the God who is there. And we exist to relate to him and to dwell with him. Or as he says here in Psalm 24, to stand in his holy place. Because the scripture alone can open up the vertical that has been blocked by the separation created through sin. Scripture itself opens up the vertical channel and reveals the true and living God. A God who is not like the gods of the Eastern world, who is infinite, but not personal. Nor is he like the gods that used to be in the Western world. Gods that are very personal, like Zeus and, uh, and Hades and Poseidon, but who are not infinite. He is the true and living God who is both at once. He's infinite, way beyond comprehension, way beyond any creature, however exalted. And he is personal so that he is content to live with those who are not in his category. A chasm is fixed between God who is holy and all else, including us, animals, plants, inanimate objects, the entire cosmos. A chasm is fixed, but there is something peculiar about us. These little earthlings, these small people, especially when you compare us to other animals who outweigh us, outrun us, outmuscle us. We are small and weak, but there is something peculiar about this creature. We are not only creature and therefore finite like dolphins and ferrets, but we are personal, like the personal God made in his personal image in order to have a personal relationship with a personal God. And so it is with every right that I can say and a sense of entitlement that I can say the human being is not nothing. The human being has great potential and an even greater destiny. Whereas we always will be creaturely, our existence is not found merely on the horizontal, tied to this creation, tied to the dust. It's upward, it's vertical, it's Godward. And this is, this is the one reality that is more true of us 
than what you see and what you feel about yourself because you are made of dust and you do return to dust and that clouds the way that we perceive and understand the world in which we are made to live now. And so here's the question of Psalm 24. If we are made to live with him, if we are made to be with him, here's the question, then who shall ascend? The holy hill of the Lord. Who will be there? Who shall stand in his holy place? Hmm? But there's a surprise built into Psalm 24 that you ought not to overlook. It's a big surprise. It's a surprise that should knock you off your feet. Surprisingly, the question of who, who, who will enter here is not only asked of us. It is asked of the Lord himself. For as you'll see it described in this Psalm, the gates at this temple, these ancient doors, they're told to fly open so that the king of glory may come in. And then there is a gatekeeper who is inside and he's only doing his job. He asks the appropriate question, yes, okay, who is there? Who is this king of glory? And it sounds as though both, brothers and sisters, both God and man are outside, below, ascending the holy hill, seeking entrance in God's holy place, both. This is key to the psalm. This is the surprise of the psalm. And now you are squarely inside the drama of Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is framed by two victories of God. God's victory over the chaos in creation in verses 1 and 2, and then God's victory over his enemies in redemption in verses 7 through 10. And couched between these two victories, you find what you might call a catechism. In verses 3 through 6, a catechism for approaching God. A catechism for being admitted into his holy presence, to be there and to dwell with him. And so the first thing to notice about this psalm of three distinct parts is that it tells a story on a vertical line. God made the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. But by his intervention, he brought order and life out of the chaos. And this is God's victory. This is a tremendous accomplishment. You wouldn't even have to say, don't try this at home. It would never work. No one can do this. Nobody can create. God creates. It's his prerogative. Not mine, not yours. Not angels, nor any other creature, only God. And it's his victory. It's portrayed as a victory. 
It is as Psalm 33, verse 8 says. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let them fear the Lord. Let them worship and praise the Lord. And why should we do this? Because he spoke. And it came to be. Because he commanded. And it stood firm. Psalm 33, like the first two verses of Psalm 24, appeals to Genesis 1, the creation account. Genesis 1 presents God in his creative activity as working in an immediate, miraculous way so as to be feared, so as to be praised and worshipped. Creation establishes God's right to worship. And you can read about this in Revelation chapter 4 before it goes on to speak of God's right to be worshipped in redemption in Revelation chapter 5. And in Genesis 1, God does not present himself as working through what theologians call a process of ordinary means. Or picture Jesus Christ healing the man who was born blind. You can read about him in John chapter 9. Through, working through ordinary means. So after 18 long years, many medical treatments, Many setbacks that almost reduced the blind man to hopelessness. And after gradual, only gradual improvement, after 18 years, the man can finally read his newspaper. He can see. But nobody would attribute it to Jesus' immediate intervention because it wasn't immediate. Oh, there is a difference between God working through ordinary means and he works through ordinary means. Of course he does. And God working as he's presenting himself in Genesis 1 through the principle of immediacy in a miraculous fashion, in an explosive fashion. There is a difference. And that difference must be maintained. If you do not maintain it, you take away from God's glory. And here, in verses 1 and 2, this whole process is compressed into a couple of verses. But it is coined as a victory over this watery, uninhabitable chaos that becomes a foundation for the earthlings to dwell and to thrive. And God is to be feared and praised for it. But as it turns out, it's only the beginning. This earth has been made as a stage. It's like this thing here that we call a stage. A stage on which is to unfold something even greater, something even more glorious. The drama of redemption with God as the principal actor. And what an actor he is. So fast forward to verses 7 through 10. Here, you have another victory. God is shown as a mighty man of war, a warrior who returns victorious from the battlefield. 
And now his towering stature calls for the gates of the temple to fly upwards, fly open. It's a way of saying, hey, make way. This king of glory ought not to stoop. He shouldn't have to stoop to enter into his house. So lift yourself up. Raise your tops. Let him enter. In ancient Israel, this psalm was most likely used in a ceremonial procession into the temple as the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, was carried into the house of God. And all this, of course, after a successful military campaign. And if it was the ark that David had in view, he certainly used the literary figure of personification because as you can see, this ark virtually becomes the Lord himself who enters his resting place. Point is, verses 7 through 10, render a triumphal procession. God fought! And now he ascends Zion as victor with his people. God as warrior is a theme that emerges with clarity for the first time in Israel's exodus. When God defeated Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea, and then the Israelites began to sing a song of victory. Exodus 15 verse 3 declares the Lord, Yahweh is a man of war. This is the biblical theme. This is a biblical concept. God is a warrior. And this is how he is portrayed here. He came down to fight and deliver his people from their enemies who oppressed them. So he led them through the wilderness for 40 years and finally after another bloody conquest into the promised land where he chose Mount Zion as his holy place to dwell with his people and so the ascent that is portrayed in Psalm 24, you could say, the ascent of Psalm 24 completes the march and the deliverance that begun in Egypt and long before that was promised to the fathers. Yes, you better believe it. The world is a stage to unfold the drama of redemption. Newspapers won't tell you this. The history books of human beings, they won't tell you this. Nobody can tell you this but God himself. If the vertical is open to you. God went out to fight for his people, subdue the nations, and he won the victory. And yes, they used to bring the ark of the covenant into the temple after such a victory. But in all the centuries, they had never seen the real king of glory. They had never seen the true king of Israel, who now desires entrance at the door of your heart, because he has conquered the world. He has subdued the nations. He has emerged victorious. And Jerusalem and the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, those were just types and shadows of better things to come. Types and shadows of heavenly 
reality, a heavenly place where God's throne is established forever. And Hebrews 1, as it was written, and as you read it earlier, featuring seven quotations from the Psalter, describes Christ's triumphal return to the glory that was his before the foundation of the world. After, says the writer to the Hebrews, after making purification for our sins. After making purification for our sins. This is the victory that has gone largely unnoticed by the world, but is celebrated in heaven. This is the victory that displays the full range of the king's glory. Hence, he is the king of glory. This is the victory that flames and flashes his splendor and majesty upon the trembling heart that believes in him and depends on him. And since Psalm 24 puts a premium on God's power in redemption, it's not hard to see, is it? These are military terms that are used here. God is portrayed as a warrior who returns victorious since it is his power that is on display. Let me say that Christ is the phenomenal, ultimate exhibition of divine power. First, because there is no greater work that God has ever done or will do than by which he turns us from darkness to light from the power of Satan to the living God. No greater work. Now, creation from nothing was a stunning display of God's power. And more than that, but of God's power. It, it, it's an accomplishment that stands out. It stands on its own. It is unassailable, and it is testifying to the fact that the things that are were made by someone who is not created who is different, who is holy. But creation from nothing, powerful and stunning as it is, did not give the creature a choice, did it? All the things that were made, even we who were made in his image, we didn't have a choice. We were not being asked. We were made and there we were. But now, to call us back from the depths of hell is greater, is greater, because we are still agents of our own will, and our will is bent towards darkness. People love darkness rather than light. Our will is twisted and perverse, and to redeem us from this, to make what is crooked, to make it straight without violating our very innate nature, this is the greater work, duly considered, rightly understood. And uh, therefore, the cross is the engine of this transformation. The cross is the engine of this process. And the cross is the most noble, the highest expression of divine power if you can receive it, because God has concealed it. 
in his frailty. In his frailty. In his surrender to shame. In his death. You behold God's strength made perfect in human weakness. And so the gospel of the cross is the victory, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And how would the world display its power? Power that's always derivative, power that we wouldn't have if it wasn't given from heaven. But how does the world display its power? If you lived under a dictator, you would have a parade once a year commemorating his rise to power. And there stands the commander-in-chief. And thousands of soldiers parade before him, giving him his due. And then there come divisions of tanks and, and um, fighter jets flying overhead in formation. This is how the world displays power. This is the show of power that the world has. Not like this. Never like this. Not like a lamb that was slain. Here is the baffling show of his strength in the paradoxical, defiant shape of a dying man. And here, this is something you need to understand. This is why the cross is the symbol of our faith. Here is where the horizontal and the vertical intersect. The horizontal because Jesus Christ atoned for our life of rebellion against God. A life that shuts God out and is on the horizontal line in rebellion against God. He brought our life of rebellion to a logical conclusion at the bar of God's justice because this is where the horizontal life will end. And he accepted the condemnation on my behalf, on your behalf. And here, here is the vertical as God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And both, do you see, do you believe, both were crucified in him. The horizontal and the vertical crucified in Christ in order to be united forever in Christ, in him. For from here, from this point of death, from the cross, God has begun to make all things new. As Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And Christ is the beginning of the new creation. And as the firstborn from the dead, he is the guarantee that many, many, many sons and daughters will follow him to glory on the vertical that he has opened. The vertical that cuts through the horizontal and breaks its spell. He has entered his holy place, you know, and um, he entered as victor. The gates flung open, and there was a celebration in heaven. And he is seated on the right hand of God, and as I said, he is the guarantee that you will follow him if you follow him. 
And he is able, yes, he is able to take with him all those who seek God's face in truth. And this brings us now to the middle portion of the psalm, this catechism for approaching God in verses 3 through 6. So the question is now, who shall stand in his holy place? And the first answer that is given, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. How does this make you feel? Clean hands denotes blameless activity, faultless behavior, perfect righteousness. And a pure heart, of course, refers to your motives. Things may look good on the outside, but here is where the real motor or the, 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 um, the, the engine of your activity is, is seated in the heart, the motives and the thoughts of the heart. And in this context, if you do not say anything else, this is the end of your quest because nobody has clean hands and nobody has a pure heart. We are not even close, nor could we ever come close. And yet, no less than a perfect life of obedience is required. No one except Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life of obedience, and no less is required for standing in God's holy presence. Nothing unclean or impure can ever enter and be there. Everything must be sanctified and purified and the multiple, multiple sacrificial rituals of the Old Testament, they constantly instructed and warned people, no entrance without sacrifice. You cannot come here without sacrifice. You cannot come here with empty hands. And Christ's sacrifice of total obedience, even to the point of death, has opened the gates for us. Finally, finally, he came into the presence of God with his own blood, saying, here is my blood, Father. Accept this. Accept this as a payment for my people's purification. For my blood cleanses sinners from all sin. And the Father accepted it. He took it and he looked the other way. This is no text that teaches salvation by works, brothers and sisters. Moreover, verse 5 speaks of God as the God of their salvation, the God of our salvation. God of salvation, what does that mean? But that God has saved us. Of course it means that. God has fought for us and he has won the victory. In other words, salvation is front-loaded. Salvation is there already. It is assumed. God's deliverance is prerequisite to any catechism of approaching God, and necessarily so. It is by Christ's victory that we gain access and have peace with God. And just how much I control in my life is seen so very well in the incident of Jesus walking on water in the midst of a raging storm when Peter attempts to do the same. We talk about walk by faith and not by sight. 
we say, yeah, walk the walk and do not just talk the talk. Yes, but I can no more walk by faith. I can no more walk before God than I can walk on water. I cannot live before God without his help, no more than I can walk on water. And it is only due to him that I do not drown in the chaos of life. And if I, at any time, think that I must walk on water in my own strength, then I will drown like Peter did. And how good to know that then Jesus' hand will reach out and say, trust me again and again and again. God of our salvation assumes that salvation is first, comes first. Second, the worshipers themselves are also called the generation of those who seek God's face. Now, what does this mean, seeking God's face? Seeking God's face is another way of speaking of seeking God's favor, seeking God's grace, as the ironic blessing of number six says, for example, May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Grant you favor, grant you grace. Seeking God's face, therefore, must be the opposite of self-reliance. It must be the opposite of living on the horizontal line. Seeking God's face opens the vertical And in this phrase, seek God's face, walking by faith is front-loaded. And so you see that the context of Psalm 24 is one of salvation accomplished and applied by faith, seeking God's faith. And so the primary ethical question is not a catalog of things to do or things not to do. The primary ethical question that you must ask is not, how then do I live or what ought I to do? That question, by the way, needs to be answered eventually. But the primary, most fundamental ethical question is, how does the world look like to you? What is the world like to you? Do you operate on the horizontal line or is your life shaped by the vertical? Because behavior and ethics, they derive from what we have seen of God. And in this light, the catalog of characteristics in verse 4 wants to be read. It is by grace through faith that ethics do follow suit. Yes, they do, but everything in its order. And the context of grace and faith, front-loaded, assumed, doesn't let you off the hook. It does not empty the list of qualities that God seeks in his worshipers. It does not relax this list. It does not set it aside. The qualities for entering God's presence, they are firm. And if God is to hear your prayers, and if your prayers are not to be hindered, 
And if you want your life to be acceptable to him, then the righteousness that you have received by faith in Christ alone, it must also shape the way you live and act from day to day. No one lives in God's presence. No one stands in his holy presence as though nothing ever happened. No one has Christ living in his heart by faith as though nothing ever happened. God's presence demands holiness. And God's presence creates holiness, makes people holy because he sanctifies us through the word that once made the world and now reshapes us in the image of Jesus Christ as the new creation that we already are. God doesn't need, nor does he want, praise from disobedient people, praise from rebellious people. He doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. And if you've been saved, and if you therefore seek the Lord's face, well, then you will also seek to keep his word. And not only a part of it, but so God help you all of it. Every day, any time, you will also seek to keep God's word. Because to you, here's the explanation, to you, he is real. He is not a figment of your imagination that leads you operating on the horizontal. To you, he is real. The vertical is open. He is the God, the living and true God. And the earth and its fullness is the Lord's. That's what you see. That's the question you need to answer. How does the world look like to you? And your life is shaped by the vertical, by the relationship that you have with him. Therefore, seek the things that are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Well, then what about the sin that so easily besets us? Now, that's a good question because it is still part of the picture, isn't it? You don't need to go far to see this. You don't need to walk out of this building to behold sin in action. It's a good question. Well, here's the answer that I would offer to you this morning. It isn't sin itself. It isn't sin itself that destroys your testimony as a Christian or blocks the vertical. It's unresolved sin. It's sin that you refuse to confess and to repent of. And repentance is an act of seeking God's face. Isn't it? It must be. <laughs> repentance opens up the vertical. And God is never, ever slow in responding, saying, yes, the channel is open. Yes, I hear you. I receive you. You are mine. Repentance is an act of seeking God's face. Restoring your relationship with him. 
and there is an answer and there is a provision for any kind of sin that you struggle with. But there is nothing. And God has nothing for tolerating sin as though it's okay. God has nothing for it. And I guarantee you, I assure you, there is nothing for it. But there is repentance. Repentance from living on a horizontal line, a life that shuts out God, or practices that put up a wall between you and God. There is repentance. And repentance by which we draw near to God, repentance is vertical. The way of repentance is vertical. And it has been cleared so that we can take this path. It has been cleared once for all by the blood of Christ's everlasting covenant. And in my own experience, this matter of repentance is somewhat tricky. You haven't repented because your behavior has changed. It may be the case, but it may not be because change can be due to many different things, not necessarily repentance as God desires it. Even unsaved people repent of sin in some way and turn from sin because they fear consequences or exposure or any such thing. No, you haven't repented when there's a change in behavior, but you are repenting. You are repenting when there is a change in the way you think. But like I said, the first and foremost of all questions is not what ought I to do? The way you live, where you start, the first question you need to answer is what does the world look like? Is God in it? Or is he not? That's the question you need to answer. And if you find that God is still there, because you believe his testimony, you take him at his word. That's all you got, by the way. If you think you have any other option, <laughs> you are a fool. You have no other option. You must believe that he is there and that he is a rewarder of all those who diligently seek his face. He, is, he really is. So you believe it. So you trust him. So that you live on the vertical line in relation with God, the King of glory and the God of your salvation. And then, then when you see the world as it is, as he shows it to you, then you seek his face. And then you keep his word. And then God will bless you. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Psalm 24. It tells a story that is placed on a vertical. You made this world as a stage to unfold your redemptive plan that came to culmination in the person of Jesus Christ whom you sent to deliver us, to manifest your love and justice, and to set us free now that we have come to see and believe this, let us walk in this reality. Let us call it back to mind when we forget or we become tired or discouraged. 
it is still the picture that you have painted that holds true. It is still the world that you show us that is ultimate reality. And in this world, you are not only present, but you love us and you guide us and you bless us as we seek your face. I pray that everyone here today would seek your face and take this word as a great encouragement to enter at the gates of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.